Allow me to get a little personal for a moment. Reincarnation has always secretly held a certain fondness inside of me since I was a child, probably in my earliest memories. What makes the sentiment so intriguing to me is that its roots seem to form without any apparent reason. I hadn't been exposed to Eastern philosophies or encountered many individuals who shared this perspective during my formative years, which were largely shaped by daily Catholic school teachings and Sunday masses. And though my inclination has always been to skew towards the pragmatic on this show, this enigmatic concept of reincarnation still holds a fascination in my daily contemplations, even when I couldn't quite fathom why. So in this episode, we'll delve deep into the world of reincarnation, gazing through the scrutinizing lenses of science and psychology. We embark on a journey to unravel complex concepts such as memory, consciousness, and neuroscience, promising a breakdown of these profound ideas into digestible insights. By focusing on the groundbreaking work of Dr. Ian Stevenson, we pave the way for an enlightening exploration that later would encompass the contributions of remarkable minds like Dr. Helen Wambach and Dr. Jim Tucker. Our voyage commences at the heart of Dr. Stevenson's captivation, the perplexing phenomena of memory. What mechanisms allow young children to articulate intricate details of supposed past lives, details which they have never been exposed to? Could it be that memories traverse deeper across lifetimes than we dare conceive? Anchoring our exploration, we take a deep dive into the pathways that mainstream neuroscience has forged to comprehend the assertions of reincarnation within the realms of memory and the brain. So join us on a cerebral journey, a voyage that leads us through the intricate web of neurons that give us life and perhaps might hold the key to a potential return. But find out for yourself in an episode I'm calling When Dr. Ian Stevenson's Science Met the Children's Memories of Past Lives. You might get what you're after. Strange but not a stranger. I'm an ordinary guy. Burning down the house. Through the prism of history, reincarnation is more than a mere fleeting thought. It's part of a web interlacing centuries of human philosophy. Consider Benjamin Franklin, the renowned polymath who charmed lightning from the skies. Holy shit, there is a fucking lightning storm. I believe that thing in the sky is the same thing that happens when you touch metal after rubbing your feet on a carpet. In 1788, he penned thoughts about re-entering this world in another life, hoping for a future brighter than his present. Sorry, pal, that's probably the high watermark for you. Well, it's intriguing, right? The aspiration of a figure of such historic gravity to relive and re-engage with the future. Fast forward to the 19th century's intellectual maelstrom. Giants like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer journeyed through the corridors of ancient Indian reincarnation tales. Even the American intellectual sphere felt the ripple with greats like Thoreau and Whitman integrating rebirth narratives 
And then William James marked its place in nascent psychology. As history pressed on, figures like Helena Blavatsky echoed reincarnation louder, paving the way for the 20th century spiritual renaissance. Even industrial magnate Henry Ford in 1928 unveiled his perspective on reincarnation. To Ford, genius wasn't a mere flash of brilliance, but a reservoir of lifetimes of experiences. And just forget these narratives. We have to admit, I've seen paintings from Keanu Reeves all over history. How did you know? Journeying even further back, ancient Egyptians with their soul concepts of Ba and Ka resonate with notions of life beyond death. India's Vedic texts intricately trace cycles of life and rebirth. Indigenous tribes from North America to Africa recount tales of souls reincarnated. This isn't just history. It's a mosaic of human hope, fear, and curiosity. A hope of seeing beloved landscapes once more, a fear of the unknown, and an insatiable curiosity about the grand theater of existence. In its varied forms and interpretations, reincarnation has been humanity's response, its narrative to the riddle of life and beyond. Yet, as we sit in our modern world, surrounded by advancements that would seem almost magical to our ancestors, it begs the question, does the ancient belief of reincarnation align with our modern scientific lens? Our tools have changed from ancient scrolls and oral tales we now have sophisticated machines that can peer into the very fabric of our being. And herein lies our expedition at the intersection of age-old faith and cutting-edge science. Yet, before we dip our toes into this existential whirlpool, we need a touchstone. And that's scientific skepticism. At its heart, science is a methodology. A rigorous, sometimes unforgiving process that demands evidence. It thrives on testable hypothesis, reproducible results, and peer reviews. It's a system designed to filter out biases and unearth objective truths, or at least as close to truth as we can get. But what unfolds when the realms of science and religion intersect? To elaborate further, here's a clip of Michio Kaku offering a much clearer explanation than I can provide, because he's way way smarter than I am. Galileo said the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So in other words, science is about natural law. It's about the laws of nature. While religion is about ethics, about how to go to heaven, how to be a good person, how to earn the favor of God, so you see, as long as you keep these two separate, there is no problem at all. The problem occurs when people from the natural sciences begin to pontificate about ethics, and when religious people begin to pontificate about natural law. That's where we get into trouble. So that's interesting. If we're dealing with religious individuals discussing natural law and scientists delving into ethics, the solution might be straightforward. Let science evaluate concepts often associated with spirituality and religion and keep ethics separate from that equation. Therefore, you ask the question, is the existence of God provable? 
Well, what is science? Science is based on things that are testable, reproducible, and falsifiable. But you see, the existence of God is not testable. It's not reproducible. You cannot reproduce God at will. You cannot put an angel inside a box and demand that miracles take place. It doesn't work that way. That's why religion is based on faith rather than things that are objectively testable, falsifiable, and reproducible. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. I don't know. I don't know if God exists or not. All I'm saying is that science is limited by looking at what is testable, reproducible, and falsifiable. There are areas where you push the boundaries of that, like the Big Bang. You cannot reproduce the Big Bang. You cannot test the Big Bang. It's like a detective story. You can only look at the clues, the clues left over from the Big Bang. So to calculate the instant of creation is in some sense outside science because it's not reproducible. You cannot reproduce the Big Bang. But you can then trace the history of what happened afterwards like a murder mystery, and that's where a lot of science is done. And that's why I say that the existence of God is not within the normal boundaries of science. All right, so Michio, we're on a first-name basis now. Michio is discussing religion and God here, and that's not specific to reincarnation, although it plays a part. But I still think the main point stands, and is the reason I have it here. Achieving reproducible results can be challenging, even for widely accepted scientific theories like the Big Bang. However, when it comes to reincarnation, there are certain aspects that could potentially be tested and have indeed been explored within its context, but why does the concept of reincarnation sit uncomfortably with a majority of mainstream scientists? Well, there's a few reasons that come to mind, but let's start with this. In numerous philosophies that embrace reincarnation, the soul or consciousness is believed to transport experiences and lessons between lifetimes. Memories, whether explicit, implicit, unearthed during guided meditations, or inferred from the outcomes of past actions, also known as karma, provide our main insight into this phenomenon. It seems the key to deciphering reincarnation may well be nestled within the intricacies of our minds. And it's undeniable, our memories are tricky. They often align with our beliefs, skirting those that challenge our convictions. Some skeptics ponder if this rebirth notion is merely our psyche's armor against the chilling unknowns of death. And there's still a scientific conundrum there. How does consciousness, this intricate dance of memories, leap from one life to the next? As far as we know, Science hasn't yet unveiled a mechanism to do this. However, some pioneers have braved the skeptic voices, possibly risking their professional reputations, and they've brought a fresh perspective to the table. But there exists a particular individual who paved the path for others to venture into this professional risk-taking territory. Think about it, across every realm, there are those who defied conventions, shattered barriers, and etched an enduring legacy within their respective domains. 
sparking inspiration for generations to come. Figures such as Sigmund Freud exemplify this, a trailblazer in the realm of psychology. Freud is revered as the originator of psychoanalysis. Similarly, consider Ada Lovelace, a maverick in the world of computer science, often hailed as the first computer programmer. She crafted what we have come to think of as the first algorithms meant to be executed by a machine, and this formed the bedrock of modern computer programming. Likewise, there is the legacy of Mary Curie, a pioneer in the field of physics and chemistry. Her groundbreaking work on radioactivity cemented her as the first woman to clinch a Nobel Prize, and this solidified her status as a timeless icon in the realm of science. And for our purposes, we're looking at an individual who set a path into the controversial realm of parapsychology. Let's help set the stage to understand why this is such a taboo subject. I hope that sets the mood a little bit. Let's visualize the scientific community as a grand dinner party. It's a formal event and you've been invited. Think starchy shirts, obtrusive bow ties, and tough shoes that dig into the back of your heel and echo with each footstep. Conversations are typically polite and restricted, with attendees sharing their thoughts within an established framework. And just as you're sipping your modest gin and tonic, a vibrant individual bursts in. He's dressed differently, confidently, almost rebelliously. He finds his way through the stuffy crowd and finds you at the bar. He proceeds to hand you a Jack and Coke. Those make you crazy, Doc. It's really not true, Bugs, and stop starting rumors. I'm really actually fine when I drink those. You say fine. Other people would say... Stop that. Anyway, this individual hands you a Jack and Coke hinting that things are about to get heated if you find yourself agreeing with his unconventional views. And there are only a handful of mavericks in the scientific community brave enough to utter the R word. Is it rabbit? It's, it's reincarnation. I mean, I must have said it 85 times already, so if you don't know what the R word is, I don't even know why you're here. Anyway... Today, the dialogue around it has begun to slowly, very slowly, evolve. And this shift in conversation is largely due to the dedication of Dr. Ian Stevenson. Dr. Ian Stevenson, whose research would deem him the outsider at this aforementioned dinner party, is actually a trailblazer outside of it. He dedicated his time to listening to children worldwide as they recounted vivid tales of what they believed were their past lives. Instead of dismissing them, Stevenson meticulously investigated these narratives. The result? A whopping 2,500 documented cases where children's recollections seem to go beyond mere imagination. Until the late 1950s, the idea of reincarnation remained largely untouched by Western scientists. This changed with Dr. Stevenson, the Canadian physician and psychiatrist. But it was not his initial specialization in biochemistry nor eminent stature in psychosomatic medicine that would set Stevenson apart. 
Instead, it was his audacious foray into the realms of parapsychology. In 1957, at the promising age of 38, he was appointed chair of psychiatry at the University of Virginia. Upon his arrival in Charlottesville, his casual interest in the paranormal evolved into a passionate pursuit. It was quite unexpected for university officials to see the head of their mental health program delving deep into the realms of apparitions and reincarnation. However, a turn of fate in 1968 saw Chester Carlson, the affluent inventor of the Xerox copying process, pass away unexpectedly. Introduced to Stevenson's fascination with reincarnation by his spiritualist wife, Carlson left a generous endowment of a million dollars to the university. The catch? The funds were designated explicitly for Stevenson's exploration of the paranormal. This gift allowed Stevenson to wholly immerse himself in understanding the intricacies of the afterlife. And this would mark the onset of a journey across places as varied as Sri Lanka, Brazil, Alaska, and Lebanon, meeting a myriad of individuals with similar stories. One of Stevenson's most compelling cases unfolded in Sri Lanka, where skeptics tried but had trouble disputing. A young girl, upon hearing the name of the somewhat obscure town of Kataragama, offered a detailed and unexpected narrative. She recalled a past where she met a tragic end, drowned by an inadvertent push from her mentally challenged sibling. Vividly, she spoke of her bald father, Harath, a flower merchant operating near a Buddhist stupa. She described a residence with unique features, a skylight and dogs that dined on meat in the yard. Adjacent to this home was a distinct temple. Stevenson's investigative prowess led him to a flower seller in Kataragama whose life bore haunting resemblances to the girl's claims. This man had experienced the heartbreak of losing his two-year-old daughter in a drowning accident, eerily similar to the girl's recounting. The house, the neighboring temple, even the canine dining habits aligned perfectly with her descriptions. A few anomalies did surface. While the girl remembered a bald father, it was other family members who bore that trait. The name Harath was associated not with her father, but with her cousin in that past narrative. Yet, the weight of evidence was undeniable. Of the 30 intricate details the girl provided, a staggering 27 were corroborated. That would be like a 900 average in baseball, by the way. While some of the cases presented more compelling evidence than others, delving into them firsthand often leaves one perplexed as many challenge conventional, rational explanations. It's funny how these kids always have extreme memories where they were brutally murdered or really famous. None of them are just like, oh yeah, I remember being a regular guy, lived and died, you know, normal stuff. Maybe they were reincarnated, or maybe there's more to the story. Okay, so we're skeptics, can you tell? Apologies to Lacey Green from DK News. I'm sorry, but this is a perfect short clip that I found for talking about scientific skepticism. Now, I think we all agree maintaining a healthy level of skepticism is crucial for any researcher, especially scientific research, regardless of your personal beliefs. However, excessive skepticism can impede progress and hinder the comprehension of new concepts. 
I'm not saying this to make you believe in reincarnation or an afterlife or anything. I don't know if that's all true, but I also know that I'm a bunch of swirling molecules on a big rock floating in space, conceived by parents I didn't pick in a time that I didn't choose. And when I start to think about things like that, I think certitude needs to take a backseat, whether it's through religion or science. Because in many cases, new ideas are initially met with strong resistance. We can look back into the realm of science. Alfred Wegener's theory of continental drift was initially ridiculed, but it's later confirmed and embraced. The Big Bang Theory. It faced doubt before replacing what was called the steady state theory. This pattern of rejection followed by acceptance is a common theme in the history of scientific progress and really human progress. It's part of the human story. And a significant factor in this puzzlement arises from Stevenson's unwavering commitment to scrutinize the paranormal accounts rigorously. He believed in laying all the cards on the table, even stating, we can achieve greater objectivity by revealing all observations, even those that might undermine our favored interpretation of the data. He generously provided skeptics with the tools to challenge his work, asserting, if critics target us, let them use the very evidence we've supplied. In this arena of skepticism, Stevenson masterfully outmaneuvered those who sought to discredit him. His seminal work, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, released in 1966, marked a paradigm shift, elevating past live narratives from folklore to empirically backed evidence. In his documentation, around half the time, the professed past life identities were identifiable, with many eventually reuniting with families from their purported previous lives. Stevenson adopted a stringent methodology, meeting claimants and their kin prior to any interactions with families from past lives. Through scrupulous documentation, he affirmed the genuineness of these reunions, believing that the majority of cases were devoid of deceit. When a past life identity was confirmed, Stevenson corroborated numerous details provided by the children. In many cases, intricate memories such as names of past family members or details of their end were validated. Let's look at the scientific alternatives here. Studies published in the journal Consciousness and Cognition found that people who believe they lived past lives are twice as likely to make memory errors as the general population. Specifically, source monitoring memory errors, where you forget where a thought or idea originally came from. They found that when people with this tendency are repeatedly asked to talk about a suggested idea, like, say, having a past life, some of them go on to convert the idea to a full-blown false memory. In the psych world, this is called the power of suggestion, the great power of the mind to realistically blur the line between a story or idea that's been suggested to us and something that's actually happened. Researchers at Harvard found similar results in alien abduction studies. They also found that these source memory errors are more common in people with vivid imagery skillage in the brain. They respond to and imagine experiences in more vivid and realistic detail, making it easier to misattribute information as a memory when it isn't. Now, as far as the study mentioned in that clip, I had to look into the study because it was conducted on 13 individuals who had recovered memories of past lives through hypnosis-like therapy. They took these participants 
and compared them to 13 others who did not have similar memories. So the study suggests that people who claim to remember past lives are more prone to confusion when it comes to the source of their memories. And they demonstrate this through something called the false fame task, where participants will sometimes mistakenly identify non-famous names as famous. It's commonly caused by previous exposure to the name, which then gets interpreted in your brain as fame. If we delve into Dr. Stevenson's work, he probably would have agreed with the study's results about the potential for false memories from psychological influences. However, Dr. Stevenson could potentially highlight the following facets of his work. He had stringent investigation techniques. His work was grounded in meticulous methodology, detailed interviews and multi-stage verification processes, careful cross-referencing of data presented by participants. He consistently strived to differentiate between authentic experiences and potential misinformation or false memories. He would probably bring up the evidence of physical traits and birthmarks. He could draw attention to significant findings concerning these birthmarks and congenital physical traits that would often align with the individual's past life recollections. He explored xenoglossy, which is really weird to say when it's spelled out in front of you. The research into xenoglossy which is a phenomenon where individuals reportedly exhibit knowledge of languages which they had never been exposed to. These types of experiences extend beyond the realm of suggestion or fabricated memories. But most of all, he had a commitment to scientific evaluation. His dedication to upholding scientific rigor, inviting further research and varied perspectives to foster a deeper understanding and exploration of this intricate field stresses that his research has always been open and critical of analysis and peer review. This echoed his commitment to advancing the study with the utmost integrity and openness. So then the next question becomes, why the young age of the children in these studies? They usually ranged from two to five. Well, Stevenson felt that this virtually rules out the possibility of fraud as Children in this age group are generally unable to fabricate intricate falsehoods or conduct their own research. And remember, a lot of this, well, almost all of this research is before the age of the internet. Another reason for using children in the studies, Stevenson had found that as these children aged, their memories of purported past lives often became less vivid and detailed. And in some cases, they forgot these memories entirely. Therefore, his research does suggest that there's a noticeable decline in the frequency and clarity of these memories as children grow past the age of five. Now, the one case that really sticks out to me that seems very difficult to dispute is the case of Ravi Shankar. Reincarnation, a widely accepted belief in India, has often mystified even those staunchest believers when it comes to the retention of past life memories. And a peculiar case that stirred scientific and public interest is that of Shankar. Northern India witnessed a tragic event. Munya, a six-year-old boy playing outside his father's barbershop, was kidnapped by two strangers. A few hours later, his lifeless body was found near a riverbank. His throat violently slit. While two suspects were detained, one even confessing before retracting his statement, they were soon released due to insufficient evidence, leaving Munya's family heartbroken. 
Interestingly, half a year after this tragedy, Shankar was born in a different part of Kanaj. By the age of two, he began recounting tales of his previous home and described specific toys he once owned. The strangest part, Shankar had a conspicuous scar-like birthmark running across his neck, eerily resembling the wound on Munya's body. He even recalled the horrifying tale of his throat being slit by two men. By 1954, tales of Shankar's recollections spread throughout the city. He narrated his murder in ways eerily consistent with the initial confession of Munya's suspected killers, the confession that was later retracted. Bunya's father, Jageshwar, despite initial resistance from Shankar's father, managed to meet the boy in 1955. Upon seeing Jageshwar, Shankar, merely four years old, recognized him and instantly embraced him. Between 1956 and 1965, the mystery surrounding Shankar attracted researchers, one of which included Dr. Stevenson. Now, when we delve into the realm of reincarnation, memory stands as the sentinel, the gatekeeper of these past life claims. And in reality, it's a fascinatingly unpredictable guardian. Take, for instance, eyewitness accounts. Although frequently utilized in legal matters, a 1996 Ohio State University study revealed that 52% of wrongful convictions are from inaccuracies in eyewitness accounts. Most people think the human mind is able to record and store every detail of the events we experience, believing that these permanently recorded memories, thoughts, and impressions can be retrieved. But our brains are not VCRs and don't just constantly record. Sorry for all the people under 35 who don't get that VCR reference. I do. I understood that reference. Look it up. You'll enjoy it. Memories aren't just static snapshots neatly filed away in the cabinets of our mind. They're fluid, malleable, and often elusive. And so, the question loomed. Was Shankar's tale genuine? Of course, this effect is exaggerated for little kids who are particularly vulnerable to the power of suggestion and forgetting where an idea came from, especially if it was planted by, say, their parents. Oh yeah, you know what I'm about to suggest. Say this village kid with the birthmark on his head also lives near the burial site of a murder victim. If the parents could make a quick buck off suggesting to their kid that that was you in a past life and your birthmark proves it, would they? Particularly if they're into reincarnation? The sort of suggestion from parents could start with a few coincidental similarities and easily convince a little kid with a little storytelling. Speculation of a hoax or the families collaborating for profit arose. But neither seemed to have a financial motive, and neither cashed in on the case. The precision and consistency of Shankar's accounts were striking. How could he know intricate details about Munya's life, including specific toys and the interior of Munya's house? Understanding memory remains a challenge for neuroscientists. While we've gained insight into memory formation and storage, Nuances like memory integration, longevity, and conscious versus unconscious recall remain mystifying. And so, the theory of cryptonesia was entertained. Cryptonesia is a memory phenomenon where a person mistakenly believes they've thought of something original when 
recalling a forgotten memory they've heard. Just to clarify, cryptonesia is not the same as source monitoring errors. They're both a phenomena pertaining to memory discrepancy. Cryptonesia occurs when an individual unknowingly retrieves a memory and believes it to be a new original thought. Source monitoring is the process of trying to accurately pinpoint the origin of a memory, which can be real or can be imagined or inferred. Cryptonesia is an unintentional error often seen in creative fields like writing or music where individuals think they've created something new but have unknowingly drawn from previous experiences or exposures. The theory was that Shankar might have overheard his parents talking about the case, but the same objection returns. How could he, in this case, have brought up details that even his parents were unaware of? And it fell short in explaining Shankar's detailed knowledge of the uncanny birthmark. Skepticism is understandable. But it also leaves room for wonder. This might have been one of Stevenson's most noted cases, but his work revealed tales of children who, with unnerving precision, recalled vivid accounts of violent deaths in their supposed past lives. This wasn't just a mere brush with deja vu. Some, with palpable vehemence, actually confronted individuals they believed had wronged them in another lifetime. But these memories were not instantaneous. The reincarnated souls, as per Stevenson's observations, took a few years of cosmic hiatus, often returning adjacent regions, but rarely traveling vast distances. If we put the concept of a soul aside for a minute, what we're essentially talking about here is the transplantation of memories. To cut to the chase, if you can remember your past lives, it seems your memories don't fade away with your last breath. But here's the puzzle. How do these memories persist once the body's lights go out? This is really the meat of the reincarnation debate. Our grasp of the brain's architecture and function has leaped forward in recent years, but understanding the true essence of consciousness still dangles before us like an enigmatic carrot, per se. Neuroscientists have diligently comb through the brain using tools like observing behavior, analyzing brain activity, genetics, surgery, and brain imaging. Their discoveries have painted a pretty strong picture that our thoughts, emotions, and experiences are intricately woven into the brain's activity. This has led many to assert that the mind is simply a byproduct of the brain's operations, and they stand in opposition to the notion of an independent mind. The link between brain and mind becomes even more apparent when we witness how changes or injuries to the brain can warp our thoughts and perceptions, but it's worth noting that correlation doesn't necessarily equate to causation. Having a healthy, fully functional brain seems to be the prerequisite for coherent mental activity and awareness in our physical bodies, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the mind vanishes in the absence of brain power. Nonetheless, there's a growing body of evidence that proposes 
the mind isn't just confined solely to the physical boundaries of the brain. While examining the impact of brain changes on the mind has its straightforward moments, understanding how shifts in the mind can ripple through the brain and body is like solving an intricate puzzle. Despite the complexity, it's becoming more and more evident that the mind packs a subtle yet potent punch that extends beyond the limits of the brain's physical realm. Yet as science advances, the mystery surrounding the exact mechanics of our conscious thoughts and emotions only deepens. The brain's knack for cooking up consciousness continues to elude neuroscientists who have yet to pinpoint a singular brain zone responsible for brewing up our consciousness. So basically what they're talking about here is brain scans, which are called MRIs. They can show us how the brain is working and changing, but they can't actually show us consciousness itself because it lights up in different places on the hemispheres of the brain. So there's no true way to see where consciousness resides or how it even works in the brain. The whole mind meets brain conundrum is one that has neuroscientists in a tizzy. It seems untangling the web that links brain and consciousness is one of neuroscience's Everest-sized challenges. How exactly does the brain manufacture our personal experiences, our feelings, even our identity? Why do we experience certain sensations, but not others? How does a mental image manage to pull on our emotional strings? These questions linger without solid answers. Scientists continue to wrestle with the intricate dance between the brain's physical choreography and the lush inner world of consciousness. Can consciousness truly endure beyond the final bow of our physical bodies? This question reverberates through the ages, compelling us to delve into the depths of our existence and push the boundaries of our understanding. The question of whether science will ever fully bridge the gap between the brain and consciousness is, for now, up in the air. There's something more, though, to this case that seemed to spark more curiosity than conclusion. Past life regression and past life regression therapy just means going back in time and doing therapy in that manner. Regression means going backward. So going back can be to childhood, to infancy, to in utero experiences, or even into past lives. The fellow I worked with, he had a very, very strong fear of heights, so I said, go back to a past life, that'll explain your fear of heights. So he said, wow, I'm a kamikaze pilot. For them, it was an honorable thing to die for their country. It was a suicide mission that they did. Now, the Americans noticed that and they fired back at him. And it hit him and it landed in the ocean next to the ship. The amazing thing was, is that the kamikaze pilot lived. When people do that, it's extremely therapeutic. 
We, for example, remember traumas occurring in a past life, carried over to this life, like the fear of phobia. It took me a moment to see the connotation there. Therefore, falling to your death is not always the reason why people have a fear of heights. His fear of heights was because he didn't die. He was dishonored. In fact, for the rest of his life, he lived on an island nearby in disgrace. symptoms in this life get better, they can disappear. Just like in traditional psychotherapy, symptoms disappear when someone remembers the causes of it with emotion. We call that catharsis. cases, the one we spoke about before, a section called The Later Development of Ravi Shankar. Stevenson explains that he met Shankar again in 1968, or in Kanpur, where he was studying for college. Stevenson goes on to write, he said he had completely forgotten the memories of the previous life, but he was evidently aware of the main features of what he had earlier remembered from hearing other people talk about his memories. And where it gets really interesting is in this paragraph. In 1969, Ravi Shankar had lost all the phobias which he had shown when he was younger. He was not afraid of barbers or of knives and razors. His fear around Chintamini Temple and Kanaj, this was near which Munya had been murdered persisted to some extent until he was 17 years old, but then receded. He no longer had any wish for revenge against the murderers of Munya. It's not the only case where Stevenson's work hints at the possibility that reincarnation might even play a role in psychiatric disorders. While his primary aim wasn't to establish a direct correlation between past lives and psychiatric disorders in perhaps the conventional sense, he did delve deeply into various psychological elements connected to these purported memories. Among the phenomena he documented were phobias seemingly tied to past life events. For instance, children who believed they perished in fires in a previous life might have an unexplained fear of fires in their present existence. Beyond phobias, Stevenson observed children manifesting specific behaviors, affinities, or preferences that they associated with their past lives. This could range from a penchant for certain foods to a familiarity with a different culture or even particular skills. One of the more fascinating aspects of his studies centered on the correlation between children's birthmarks or birth defects and their alleged injuries or cause of death in past lives. A child with memories of being shot might present a birthmark precisely where they claim to have been wounded. Intriguingly, the studies showed no signs of karma. Unlike many religious beliefs about reincarnation, 
it seemed more of a systematic transfer of souls than a process driven by moral judgments. How this system works remains uncertain, even to Stevenson. Yet, he wasn't in the business of forming grand theories. He focused on meticulously collecting and examining these particular findings, aiming to debunk any typical explanations. Stevenson believed that if we ever understood the mechanics behind his observations, it would revolutionize our concepts, dwarfing even the Copernican shift. That's a bold claim, but it's hard to dismiss. Dr. Stevenson's work is about understanding reincarnation in a new way. Instead of just a spiritual idea, he looks at it as part of how we understand our minds and ourselves. This makes us question what we know about the line between the physical, our bodies and our brains, and the spiritual, our souls and beyond. Our minds are complex. We feel things physically, but we also have thoughts and feelings that we can't touch. C.D. Broad, the British philosopher who passed away in 1971 and made significant contributions in areas like metaphysics and philosophy of the mind, thinks our mind has two parts. One part that's connected to our body and another, the psychic part, that might continue even after we die. Dr. Stevenson had a name for this idea. He called it the psychophore. Think of the psychophore as a bridge between the tangible and the metaphysical. Picture it as a courier shuttling our essence, experiences, and maybe even memories from life to life. Let me backtrack a little bit too. If you don't know what metaphysics is, metaphysics is like digging deep into the big questions about life and then everything else around us. It's a part of philosophy that asks, what's the true nature of things and how do the seen and unseen parts of the world connect? So while science focuses on what we can see and test, metaphysics is all about exploring ideas beyond that, like time, space, love, and even our very thoughts. Imagine metaphysics as a bridge between what's solid and what's mysterious. Just like animals can sense things we don't understand, or something like how we feel love without seeing it. Metaphysics is the study of these powerful, unseen forces. The term metaphysics actually traces its origins to Aristotle's writings succeeding his explorations in physics. It embodies the notion that there's more to our reality than meets the eye. Metaphysics is like the roots of a tree, often unseen, but grounding and giving life to all philosophical questions above the surface. Now, at first glance, metaphysics and science may appear at odds, but they share a unified pursuit, which is the truth. Picture that tree in your mind again. Metaphysics and science are akin to the roots and branches of a tree. While one burrows deep, anchoring foundational truths, the other extends outward, interpreting the tangible expressions of those same truths. Just as a tree relies on both its roots and branches for nourishment and growth, metaphysics and science together form the twin pillars of our quest for deeper understanding. This is the end. And as we come to the end of this journey, no matter where we stand on the idea of reincarnation, 
or even life after death. We have to admit that Dr. Stevenson gifted us a captivating glimpse into the mysteries of consciousness, identity, and memory. And though Stevenson's efforts didn't produce mainstream acceptance of his work, it did garner some respect in mainstream circles. The Journal of the American Medical Association reviewed one of his books in 1975 and stated that in regard to reincarnation, he painstakingly and unemotionally collected a detailed series of cases in which the evidence is difficult to explain on any other grounds. In addition, Carl Sagan, the late astronomer, who was very skeptical of non-mainstream work, wrote, there are three claims in the parapsychology field which, in my opinion, deserve serious study. With the third being that young children sometimes report details of a previous life, which upon checking turn out to be accurate and which they could not have known about in any other way than reincarnation. Stevenson retired in 2002 but continued to write, including a final chapter summarizing his career. He died in 2007, but several researchers are continuing the study of this phenomenon that he began in the mid-20th century. And beyond creed or conviction, whether we be skeptics or devout believers, this journey reveals our shared longing to comprehend the essence of existence. As we listen to tales from distant lands and lives, we recognize our oneness. While answers elude us, we walk together, sustained by the light of wisdom passed down from one generation to the next. And what we find is that maybe, just maybe, we'll unlock life's deepest riddles. Not as fleeting individuals, but as eternal fellow travelers. Listen, The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Stuck to you.